Tuscan orange grapefruit. My God, America is imploding. That it is, ladies and gentlemen. That it is. Welcome to another episode of Fan Zone. We're here. It's a number one contenders match. That went quick. Uh, but no, this was exciting. We've got a big match. Uh, we've got Jacoby Bancroft, uh, most recently winning against Nazario, going up against Caleb Coho, who most recently won up against Jim. Whoever wins this match goes on to play for the title. Oh boy, what could happen? Let's start by introducing today's judges. Uh, returning, Mr. Barr. Barr, hello. How are you today? Doing really good. Uh, these are two really good competitors. Uh, having judged Jacoby's last match, I know that for a fact. Uh, and Coho, uh, having lost to him, was wrong. Um, uh, I also know that he's a very hard uh, competitor to beat. So uh, the key to this match for me is uh, make me laugh. It's very hard to do. Fair enough. All right. Uh, also returning, it's Doug or Doug or Shadug, whatever you want to say. Shadug's fine. I've made Bar laugh in public. That's fair. That's fair. How you doing, Doug? I'm good. Uh, no, it's uh, this is gonna be an interesting match. I love both these competitors. I think their styles are very unique uh, and a lot of fun. It's gonna it's gonna be fun seeing Coho try and get under Jacoby's skin and Jacoby just saying whatever. <laughs> well, we'll see if that's what happens. Uh, I figured I brought a Kingsman in for this match. I should probably bring in uh, somebody on the Jacoby side of things. So I brought in Brian Michaels. Brian. Hi. I didn't know I was supposed to the... write anything on my board. So I didn't. <laughs> you, you, didn't um, you didn't have to. You're good. Yeah. Uh, you're you're back to judging. I think so it's my first time judging fan zone. I don't know if I yeah. ever did nerdgasm or not, but I will say I think I like this a lot more than actually debating because there's way less pressure. That is absolutely true. That is uh that is 100% correct. Okay, um, so let's actually get into talking to the competitors. We'll talk to the lower-ranked competitor first. His name is Caleb Coho, and he looks like he's about to go bet on some horses. Caleb, um, how you doing? I am a hairless Jacoby. Uh, I, um, I'm excited to be here. Uh, last time I debated, uh, I was very rusty against Jim. Uh, and before that, I got my ass completely kicked all over the place in a title match that I wasn't ready for. Uh, so vengeance will be mine. I'm one away from the rematch. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm excited to be playing Jacoby. Jacoby's really good, and he's really, he's a really fun dude. So we'll see how this debate goes. Uh, but I I want the rematch. Mark my words. I want the rematch. All right, sounds good. Okay, well we'll bring in Mr. Jacoby. Jacoby. <laughs> Jacoby likes turtles. Yay! Good, good for Jacoby. Yeah, Jacoby, are you excited? Uh, you narrowly escaped Nazario in the last match, uh, but that was a fantastic match. It's you know one of the best ones we've had in Fan Zone. How are you feeling about taking on uh, Mister uh, Betting uh, Twenty on Speed Stallion? <laughs> <laughs> um excited uh, is a word is, is, is a word to think. I remember uh my last match against Nazario was probably one of the most stressful things of my life. And now I'm glad I'm here again to be in another super stressful scenario of my life. So either way, I'm gonna be happy because if if I win, I get to play for the title, and that's awesome, and that's super and I'm super happy. And if he beats me, then I get to take a break. So either way, it's gonna be great. Um, but I'm super excited to play Coho, excited to see what he brings to the 
table. I know he has a reputation for being a very nice, very fair, very just logical arguer for like everything. So we're just going to have a really intelligent conversation about movies. Um, so I'm super excited. Yes, uh, Koho is one of my dearest friends. I couldn't help but laugh, though, during that last little bit. Uh, okay. <laughs> Fuck. Okay, clones. here's Attack how it's going to work. Uh, the, each competitor drafted two categories. We then made some questions based on those categories for the competitors to debate. The first person to three is the winner. If it's tied two to two, after the four debate questions, we will go to a bonus speed round question to decide the winner. Um, you obviously earn a point based on the judges' rulings. Uh, two out of three votes will earn you a point. Gentlemen, are there any questions before we get into the first question? Nope. All right. Well, uh, to quote a show that used to be popular, I don't know if it's still on the air. Let's fight. Uh, when I showed that to Cody, he said, are you going to play the whole scene? And I said, just enough to give them a taste of Ted, but not too much. Uh, all right, guys, let's get into question one. This is a category that Coho drafted. It's in the world of DC and the worlds of DC, specifically Superman. And the question is, or the sentence, pitch Man of Steel 2. Uh, so we will get started with Mr. Coho, who has one minute on the clock when he starts talking to open his pitch. So the big is issue with Man of Steel is that it doesn't really treat Superman like Superman. It treats Superman like Batman as a very dark, moody, brooding figure. Uh, I want to correct this uh, by taking a post-Justice League Superman and updating him to being... Superman, like we see at the end. So six months after his return from the dead in Justice League, Clark Kent is struggling with PTSD um, from being from being dead in the time that he is lost with his loved ones. Uh, Lois and Martha have been through a lot that he hasn't experienced. Um, he finds himself coming back as the sort of symbol of hope uh, that people have put upon him, and he's really confused by it because he doesn't really understand why people made a sudden change on him. Um, and so he finds himself being a symbol of hope to others and a symbol of fear to a lot more people. Um, and it comes down to uh, Lex Luthor being our main villain, uh, continuing to stir the pot and to make Superman more of a figure of controversy all the way through while his health continues to deteriorate and incite more controversy uh, in a world that he is unfamiliar with. He must find his place. Time. All right. We will move over to Mr. Jacoby. One minute when you start talking. Okay, my Man of Steel is going to do uh, my Man of Steel Two is going to do two things. Like the first one, it's going to kind of further examine Superman's role in today's world, but do so in, in an exciting new setting. It's also going to focus more on the character of Superman himself and prove that you can make an interesting movie with a warm and fun Superman. My pitch is this. In the 30th century, the Legion of Superheroes have successfully brought peace to the world after decades of conflict and war, using the legend of Superman as a foundation for heroism and hope. 
bored by this development, the fifth-dimensional jokester Mr. Mixelplick makes a dangerous move in resurrecting a powerful enemy from the past, Brainiac. With the world on the brink of annihilation, the Legion use their last bit of power to summon the only hero who's ever stopped Brainiac in the past, Superman. Now, stuck by himself in a time he doesn't quite understand, Superman has to take on his most powerful enemy ever while living up to the impossibly high standards this time period places on him as a legendary hero. Uh, the best director for this is Brad Bird, who knows how to make a fun superhero movie with plenty of action, heart, and humor. All right. Guys, five minutes on the board. Remember, don't talk over each other. Try to keep it civil. 30-second back and forth. If one of you starts rambling, I will come in and tell you to shush. Five minutes when one of you starts talking. Here's the issue with your idea. This works really well as a Man of Steel prequel if Man of Steel doesn't exist because this involves the storyline that you have picked is a Superman who is younger. It's uh, It works better with a younger Superman, a teenage Clark, who doesn't realize the pressures that he has. This is already an adult Superman who is not really going to live up to the standards and the bright-eyed optimism that you need for that story. I disagree with you because I actually think this actually plays better than uh, post-Justice League with post-Resurrection because he's still trying to refine his place in a world better than yours does because you started off your pitch saying that you were you were Man of Steel made a mistake by making him more like Batman and then you go and pitch Superman as a PTSD with, with deteriorating health. No, I want to that's fun and warm like that's happening post justice league and that is this is the perfect placement for it. as he's struggling to find out what role he's going to play post coming back this is a better one for him in the future because then he can see his legacy superman with ptsd helps make him a little more human and a little bit more relatable than the, than the batman and possibly hide cold let's just burn the world superman from the first one using ptsd as a sort of uh as a sort of mechanism for superman in this story helps bring him down to our level a little bit which makes him a lot more uh digestible for other people whereas yours doesn't even really take superman you're making a legion of superheroes movie with superman as a supporting role this is barely a sequel uh and also i hate that you use mr mitz pitlick as a supporting tool to launch your thing when he could very well be the main villain See, but I don't want to see a, uh, a traumatized PTSD riddled Superman who has deteriorating health for this, a lot of reasons because you're acting like that's what makes him relatable. No, what makes Superman relatable is that he's warm, he's funny, and he has a heart. I don't want to see him struggling like like uh, Iron Man in Iron Man 2 and 3. Hold on, Iron Man 2 and 3 because you're basically copying the plots of both of those movies and those did not work out for either of those two movies before. Right. Having Mr. Mixelplick as a villain in the later one adds that kind of fun element to it because he's the secondary antagonist. It's not a Legion of Superhero movie. It's because the Legion of Superheroes are gone and it's Superman himself refocusing on his character and cutting out all the unnecessary side characters like Lois Lane, Perry White, all those people and focusing on Superman himself in the future by himself. Lo Lois, Lane and Perry, Lois Lane and Perry White are what makes Superman Superman. Those supporting characters are what ground him as a human connection and also using the PTSD mechanism doesn't mean he's not going to be a heart, uh, a, a Superman that you know. He's not going to be the, ha the heartful, the I like human Superman. It's actually more of an obstacle where I want to help people. I love people, but I can't help people when i'm like this but i'm trying it helps create that dynamic of i'm doing my best but my best isn't good enough when i'm not at my best he's still superman it's just this thing that helps make him a little bit more uh a little bit more relatable as a human it makes him a little bit more uh of a character that people can digest all the way around plus you haven't even talked about my plot you just don't like the ptsd angle your entire plot does not work in the realm of superman because you're bringing brainiac who he's never met and you're going, oh, it's his greatest villain ever that he's beaten before. They've never met. That makes no sense. You're breaking your own continuity within the worlds of DC. No, because that's what makes it an interesting story. Because he's brought to the future because he's beaten Brainiac in the past, but not our Superman yet. So he's facing a villain that he knows he's beat, 
but he has to face him for the first time there. It, it it creates an interesting parallel for his character in order to beat a villain that's already been beaten by him in the past that he doesn't know how he did it yet. Superman so would never beat Brainiac one-on-one. -on -one. It's why he's a Justice League villain. And then you have the Legion of Superheroes who are the C-rate Justice League. They're they could never ever be their own movie, and that's what you're pitching. You're talking about, about the plot and haven't talked about the plot of the movie. My movie at least does something new with the plot. and does. You said, let's make Lex Luthor do it again. Let's make him struggle to be a symbol of hope Let's give a good Lex Luthor. Exactly, hold on, hold on. That's exactly what happened in Batman v Superman. You're recreating Batman v Superman right down to the You're very point of him struggling to be, a, hold on, a symbol of peace and hope because that was the whole driving point of the movie. Some people loved him. Some people feared him. I am putting him in a new situation in the future where he's alone, where he is the symbol of hope, and he has to kind of reevaluate what that actually means. One minute. Setting. Ah uh, yes, because when we haven't when we haven't been able to write a Superman that does this, let's just go ahead and pretend like we have and make a movie where everyone already thinks he's Superman, so that people will just maybe forget that we never made a Superman movie. Your movie doesn't work within the canon that we're pitching. My movie, yeah, it borrows from Batman v Superman, it borrows from Iron Man three and Iron Man two, but because it borrows from those, I know it's going to work because I'm going to put those things together to make a movie that actually is good and actually works within our continuity to give us the Superman that you want. It's the story of finally getting to that Superman with a Lex Luthor who can actually to be manipulative and evil and basically Jesse Eisenberg in the social network as Lex Luthor we're finally going to get the Superman that we want and the Superman sequel that we need to make him the Superman that we want your Superman is not Superman you're pitching a movie that could come five movies from now but it doesn't work now you keep going back. You're retrograding whatever happened in Justice League. You're saying it fits in the continuity and everything that happens for that, but that's not what you're doing. You're taking him back from the warm, happy Superman that he started to be in Justice League and making him a PTSD-riddled bad guy, and that doesn't work. My movie, at least in the future, makes him Time. continue on that storyline. Oh, boy. All right. Jacoby, you get one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Superman is a great character, but a uh, difficult one to make a movie of, especially in today in today's times. How do you challenge the absolute perfect God? Koho wants to kind of nerf him by giving him PTSD and deteriorating health and place him in a mostly carbon copy plot of what we just saw in a world that fears him. I think that's the wrong move for the, for the character. Superman can still be the big blue Boy Scout and still be interesting. He can be the warm, heartfelt symbol of hope he's supposed to be and not be boring by placing him in a brand new futuristic world that adores him, but he's just not that familiar with and he has to adapt to living up to the legend that he set in the past he hasn't beat brainiac yet but he knows he will how does a character like that struggle with that my movie at least allows him to open up his full range of powers without being limited by something as eye-rolling as deteriorating health i want a superman that that is in full control of his powers using his super strength and his wits and his strength to complete ability against brand new villains like brainiac and mr mixelplick it's going to be a great movie um and we didn't talk about directors, so I won't bring that up here. But, uh, yeah. Time. All right. Coho, uh, we'll move over to you for your one-minute closing when you start talking. Jacoby wants to pretend that the last two movies didn't exist and give you a movie that would not work in the world of DC whatsoever. He also keeps giving you things about my plot that aren't actually in my plot because he didn't listen. Yes, PTSD is something that I want my Superman to have because it will make him a little bit more human. It does not nerf him. It makes him a little bit more relatable because that's naturally what would happen when you come back from the dead and you miss 
six months, six years of life. Superman is a character that is super relatable. That is the big blue boy scout. He can still do that while still having to struggle with human things like PTSD and anxiety. That doesn't make you a bad character. That doesn't make you a painful one. Sam Mendes was my choice. I didn't get a chance to say that because he could actually handle action and emotion like Skyfall, which is the tone I kind of want this to have. Whereas Brad Bird can't make a Superman movie. He can't. He can only do the Fantastic Four and the Incredibles. That's all he can do. When it comes down to my movie, my movie is going to be a lot more human, a lot more relatable, and actually get into touch with who Superman is while still fitting into the continuity. Jacoby's cannot work. When you put him in the future, you're making a Legion movie with a villain that does not work for Superman. Brainiac will not work. Mr. Miss Pitlick is a wasted side character. His entire plot doesn't work in the world of DC. Mine expands on the character and makes him even better than it was before under the direction of Sam. Time. All right. Uh, well, that was intense. <laughs> we had our own little uh, BVS there for a second. Okay. Uh, judges, do we have our choices written down? No. <laughs> I knew this is how this match was going to go and this one got locked up I was pumped and I'm glad I don't have to judge it <laughs> oh thanks good bar sure <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, we'll start the guy uh, with the guy who looks like Illinois just spit on him. Brian, we'll, we'll start with you. <laughs> you did it, Brian. Learn how to mute button works. Oh, God. Hey, Don't I'm mute. back. Um, yeah, you film this on a, on a game day. I'm going to, you're going to end up yeah, with this. Sorry. No, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, okay. Um, all right. So early on, Jacoby kind of dug himself in a hole for me because. The whole, you know, 30th century, far in the future, you think, how does this work into the world of DC continuity? And Caleb was absolutely right on that. But then Caleb starts talking and, you know, how he wants to get away from the, you know, the, the, the brooding kind of dark thing. But then Jacoby is right. He totally contradicts himself, you know, the PTSD thing. And not only that, but then later on when he says that his director is going for that Skyfall tone, that's totally feeding right back into that same kind of brooding, depressing thing. Um, at the same time, you know, I thought uh, Caleb attacked very well, especially uh, I thought it was a good attack when he was talking about how Brainiac, how I can't fight him when he's somebody he's never even met before. Then Jacoby knocked that point right back down with probably the point that actually probably won it for me was that that's a whole interesting angle is that he's beaten this guy before. He just doesn't know it because he's been, you know, in this part in the future. So I gave my. OK, uh, Doug, we'll go to you next. Where are you? Uh, uh, for the same reason that Brian gave it to Jacoby, it was the whole argument is uh, it'd be a really interesting angle for Superman to fight a villain that he's already fought that he's never actually fought in the future, you know, in where he is right now. And I think that would make a really interesting Man of Steel too. All right. Uh, Jacoby does get the first point, but we'll move over to Barr anyway. Barr, where would you have gone and why? Um, this is This is one of those things where uh, it, it it comes down to which one would I rather watch, but also because it's wrapped up in a world, which one works best with the continuity. Um, and that's why I went with Co. He argued why his the continuity would work better for that franchise. All right. Well, that's why we have three judges. But uh, so uh, split decision on the first one. But Jacoby does I, get the first point. I, I threw the continuity thing out as as a last ditch effort. I'm on that one. I, that, that's what you struggle with. Wonder it's Woman, like, I don't know how the continuity works, but it's which movie I'd kind of rather watch. So, yeah. Yeah. all right. Uh, so we will move on to Bar question hates number all my two. Pitches. 
Uh, we'll move on to question number two, which is in the category of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This was drafted by Jacoby. The question is... The question is, what is the most underwhelming final battle in an MCU film? Uh, we are going to start with Jacoby because he drafted this. Jacoby, you have one minute to tell us uh, what is the most underwhelming final battle in an MCU film. A uh, final battle of an MCU movie needs to do a lot of things. Obviously, it needs to have the epic ap action that tops everything that came before. It needs to have an emotional conclusion to whatever the hero is facing. And it needs to have a fun energy and a sense of humor. Not only does the final battle in Iron Man 2 drop the ball on all of those things with a boring action set piece that sees Iron Man and War Machine stand in one spot and comment on how easy the battle is. No catharsis at all to what Tony is dealing with throughout the movie with his near-death experience. And some pretty jarringly lame jokes but it goes even beyond that by making its secondary characters like Whiplash and Pepper extremely dumb with things like Whiplash letting Tony and Rhodes have a full conversation while fighting him and Pepper straight up walking toward a bomb because she hears beeping. As you watch Iron Man 2, which is not a great movie, you desperately want it to be better. And as things progress, you're at least hoping for a strong finale that will at least make this movie watchable um, and that will save this movie. But in the end, you are going to be underwhelmed. And that is why the final battle in Iron Man 2 is the most underwhelming uh, final battle of an MCU movie. MC. Time. All right. We'll move over to Mr. Coho. Coho, what is your choice for uh, most underwhelming final battle? One minute when you start talking. So I agree that your ending battle should actually be, you know, a battle, have action, which is why I picked Spider-Man Homecoming, where there is actually no final fight. Uh, in this one, Vulture is on a ship, Spider-Man sits behind him and is like, you need to get down. And then Vulture falls uh, and the plane crashes and they sit there and then Spider-Man webs the the crate that's going to explode and pulls Vulture down and saves his life. There's no actual fight between these two throughout this final conclusion, and that's why it's underwhelming. With Spider-Man and Vulture, two characters who have a great dynamic, who I would love to see actually fight, that we were supposed to see actually fight, and we never actually get that final fight that brings that entire storyline through and through together. I'll get into why Iron Man 2 is actually not as bad as Jacoby is saying in a minute. But Spider-Man Homecoming is one of the best MCU movies and it has one of the weakest conclusions because it doesn't do anything with Spider-Man or Vulture to bring their relationship full circle in this final fight. This final fight ends with literally no fight and ends with Spider-Man not really doing much and Vulture not being that menacing. Time. All right. So we got the uh, finale of Iron Man 2 versus the finale of Spider-Man Homecoming. Five minutes when one of you starts talking. You're also severely downplaying Black Widow's part, which is one of the coolest things intercut with the rest of the battle. That entire final battle is pretty cool. It's Iron Man and Rhodey finally together in a suit defusing bombs. Does it go a little fast? Yes, because we spent a lot of movie on the Iron Man catharsis where he makes himself saving his own life, but you still get Black Widow being a badass in a hallway for the first time, which is probably the best scene in that entire movie. Um, for an Iron Man movie, I don't want the best scene in the final fight to be a Black Widow movie. That's that's just my thing. I want Iron Man to be to be the best thing. The thing about your fight, which I think is the difference, with, you say it does nothing for the Spider-Man character. It actually ties his whole character arc together overall by him saving Vulture at the end, which is different than what Iron Man does because Iron Man doesn't have any character arc in the final battle too. He solves his death problem early on, and then he's left with nothing. The final battle is not cool with Defusing Bomb. He stands there. They take out the drones super easily, and they say, wow, this is actually kind of easy, isn't it? That's underwhelming. Actually. 
Actually, Iron Man 2 is them flying around, grabbing bombs off the ground for the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes of that fight. They land after they get all the bombs, and then they stand there and go, that seemed like it was too easy. And a bunch of drones drop down with whiplash, and that's when the fight start really starts to begin. And they blow all of them up with a bunch of epic guns. There's an epic shootout there in that dome that you're completely downplaying because you don't like Iron Man 2. There is no character development to Spider-Man Homecoming. The point that you're making is when he lifts the bricks before the final fight. That's when his character moment comes full circle, when he says, come on, Spider-Man. That's where that arc is done, which leaves nothing for the final fight, and they just don't even fight. Uh, the fact that 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 Spider-Man is the thing about deciding about what hero he wants to be, and then he decides at the end to save Vulture's life, which then in turn is a great character moment for him because it kind of alters Vulture's perception of the character. That's a great character moment. The fact that you said it's an epic fight of him drop is super easy that they pick up bombs, which you're right, it is easy. And then they drop down and fight the drones, and you say it's an epic fight. No, it's easy as well. They blast the drones with one shot, and then they use an epic one-kill-all yeah. thing, and it's just like, oh, you should have used that right away. You should have, but then the fight would have been... Uh, five seconds instead of the 20 seconds we got. Plus, Whiplash, the final villain himself, has no interaction with the character. And that's the difference between yours and I fight. The characters of Vulture and Spider-Man are so intrinsically linked together in that final fight that it makes it compelling. Whiplash does no interaction fight? with Iron Man 4. No, my question is, what, what final fight are you talking about? Because there is no final fight in Spider-Man Homecoming. They fall off a plane, and Spider-Man lays there, concussed, and then Vulture flies away to blow up, and Spider-Man just webs the thing down. There isn't a uh, giant moral dilemma he has in this moment, like he says. He just does it because he's Spider-Man. That's it. There's no moral dilemma to that scene. Your scene is actually pretty cool. When you see the gunfight, the one thing, they shoot everyone for about 20 seconds, and then the laser thing, and the laser thing makes for a funny joke of, why don't you use... Why don't you use that first? That entire dynamic between Rhodey and Tony is the arc. Their entire relationship through this final fight, their entire relationship over the course of the movie, has been strained and tested, and this final fight is what brings them together, which strengthens the entire movie by making that subplot come to a conclusion by them being a great team. But it's also done at the cost of like making the villain like really lame. Because like while Rhodey and Rhodey and Iron Man are right there together, they're talking about, hey, what do you think our plan should be? And it's like, oh, I don't know, maybe we should do this. It's like, oh, actually, I think that's a good idea. Okay, let's do this right now. And then and Whiplash is literally standing there doing nothing throughout the whole thing, which is awesome. they don't Mickey Rourke thing in there, which is what happens in that movie. Compared to the the the, the relationship between Vulture and Spider-Man in that movie, you said there's no moral dilemma. There is a moral dilemma because Spider-Man is trying to decide what type of hero he wants to be throughout that whole movie. And that 20 he is the hero who will save somebody, save someone who has threatened his identity, save someone who has threatened the people he loves to kill them. And what will super, what will Spider-Man do without question is save that man no matter what. And that is a Again? good moment for the character. Again, you're talking about 20 minutes before this fight. He's already made up his mind about everything that you're saying before this scene. The scene is a literal dead nothing scene all the way through. There is no safety. There is no character development and nothing comes of this. He literally doesn't even throw a punch. This fight does nothing for either character because everything you're talking about comes 20 minutes earlier. And in when you say your final fight is is the villain gets neutered. The villain was never something to begin to love anyway in this movie. He was never written well to begin with. So I'm not mad that the villain is just kind of a plot for them to beat at that point. I'm talking about the actual action of that scene. You have action in that scene. You have the gunfight, which lasts long. You do have the jokes. The jokes are funny and they're good quips. And the Black Widow action intercut with the middle still makes that an interesting battle to watch. Plus, you still have Sam Rockwell and Peppers back and forth in the main arena. There is still a lot to like about your finale. There isn't anything to gain from mine because nothing happens. 
Now, everything happens in that movie. It's no. Spider-Man doing his thing in order to in order to, earlier. To, to everything for it. Yes, he doesn't throw a punch, but that's the point. Spider-Man doesn't have to throw a punch to win the victory. It doesn't matter. It's not an underwhelming fight because it's true to the character itself. Mine's an underwhelming fight because nothing happened. It's over way quicker than you expected. It's cut away to a Black Widow who is, yeah, that's what I want the best part of my movie is a Black Widow fight scene. I came to an Iron Man movie to watch Iron Man and Rhodes get together. I came, I, I had to watch a whole movie struggle with, uh, Iron Man struggle with his- There's a difference between his, underwhelming and disappointing. Disappointing. You're arguing for disappointing, not underwhelming. Well, underwhelming. Time. All right. Coho, we'll start with you. You have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Jacoby's arguing really well for why his, his is the more disappointing conclusion, not the most underwhelming. His has action. His actually has some good moments. His has Blackwood's introduction, which is actually really fun to watch. The gunfight action where they stand back to back and are using all the different weapons that we've seen them accumulate over the movie on the drones is really cool and really fun. And at the end of the day, the jokes work because Tony and Rhodey are charismatic and fun to watch together. They're not, they don't take you out of the movie. They help build that relationship. And he says, oh, they telegraph the plan? No, he sits there and goes, you want to do this right now? Let's do this right now. And they do the hand thing from the beginning which plays off of stuff that came from before in the movie it is a good finale in terms of action and the way that it develops tony stark through because guess what tony stark totally is the same character that he was in the last movie he doesn't do character development iron man 3 is what develops him. if you came for character development and you came for the wrong movie you were disappointed black what is the best part of yours when it comes to mine there is no development of spider-man all the development of spider-man happened 20 to 30 minutes before with the building scene there is no final fight there's no development of either character and in the end you are left underwhelmed because nothing happens in this finale yours is cool to look at time all right jacoby one minute to close when you start talking Uh, the reason the Iron Man 2 fight is the most underwhelming is because we have no investment to anything that's actually going on. There's nothing to get us uh, excited or emotionally invested to make us feel anything except underwhelmed. The first Iron Man changed the superhero movie, and it was only natural to assume that Iron Man 2 would be just as good, if not better. That clearly was not the case. So as we have to watch an Iron Man movie with surprisingly not a lot of Iron Man actually in it, there's a hope that it's going to build to something. Heck, the movie solves Tony's heart problems before the final fight, fight so you might think we'll get something fun and exciting exciting without being bogged down by the potential death storyline but that actually has the opposite effect in what it's trying to do because the action and the fighting is so underwhelming it's so quick nothing happens and it, it leaves us with no connection at all to what's going on uh homecoming uh the, the spider-man does not throw a punch i will give him that but that's not the point of what makes it an actually investing battle it's not underwhelming because it's true to the character that that was set up beforehand for for everything that happened there uh to him as a black screen so i don't know if i'm out yet <laughs> Um, I think, okay. <laughs> it was gone for a while. Sorry. Uh, yeah. I'll, if you want, I can give you an extra five seconds. Um, but you would have to start. Yeah, no, I, guess I was, I was in floods. Fine. I don't want to just ramble. Okay. All right. Okay. So, uh, we will bring back in the judges. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm going to be that person. Can I hear the question? I was going to ask the same thing. I want to hear the wording of the question. Yeah, the wording of the question is most underwhelming final battle in an MCU film. Okay. I have my answer. I'm just sitting with my hands in my head. Okay. Is everyone out there answers first? I just want to say, because 
Everyone has it. Because you know what's super funny is I thought you said far from home in the chat. So I prepared for far from home. Oh, no. Oh, no. I was like, wow, you chose a really easy one to get out. <laughs> that opening, I was like, oh, shit. Oh, <laughs> no. I'm not vulture in that scene. What? That's yeah. I'm not talking to you. Uh, that's I think if we don't see Tim in the next two hours, I think we have to call someone. <laughs> she she's in the bathroom, uh, like doing her makeup and stuff, and I just went, Oh no, and she goes, What? <laughs> you just gonna see a shoe fly on screen. <laughs> um, okay, so who throws a shoe, honestly? <laughs> Bar. You did not get to have your vote count last time, so we will start with you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, unfortunately, Jacoby just didn't argue why it was a fight scene. Um, so, yeah, Coho. Okay. Um, Brian, we'll go to you next. Um, I think Coho trying to tell why Iron Man 2's finale was good wasn't really helping because, you know, it, it, it wasn't. Um, you know, and I... And, and, Jacoby countered well with Black Widow being the best part of the Iron Man scene and you know things and and it really wasn't a good scene. But it all comes down to the fact, really from the very opening, that Co pointed out, there isn't even really a final battle here. So I mean you can't get more <laughs> underwhelming than not even ending in a climactic battle. So I went with uh, Caleb Young Phil Collins Coho. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel it. All right. Uh, so with that, Coho wins point number two. But Doug, your vote did not count. Where would you have gone? Uh, yeah, you can't be underwhelming if your entire film's underwhelming. Uh, Coho uh, got it with that argument. All right. Well, uh, clean sweep on that one for Coho. Uh, I believe this is the first match of this little tournament where the competitors have won the uh, other competitors' question. That is a uh, that is the first time that's happened in a bit. The team oh. synergy is coming together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, let's get into question number three. Um, this question is going to be in the category of directors uh, picked by Mr. Coho. And the question is, what is the best scene in an Alexander Payne-directed film? All right, so we are going to start with Coho since he drafted this. Coho, you get one minute when you start talking. Alexander Payne is one of the best director-writers working today because he understands character and he understands dialogue better than most people and how to put those two together and marry them into making really great moments and great scenes. Uh, there's none better example than in his second film, Election, uh, with the pre-prayers election scene where your three lead uh, electoral candidates are sitting on the side of their bed, praying about what's coming before Reese Witherspoon, praying uh, about how uh, that she deserves this, that she's earned this, so she, so God should give her this election and help her win. Um, the younger brother of Chris Klein's character sitting there and going, uh, I really uh, think I'm better than them, and I, my heart is still broken by the candidates, so I would like my brother to win, but at the end of the day, uh, fuck them both. Uh, and... Chris Klein saying there's thanking God for giving him a supposedly nice penis instead of even praying about the election. Uh, it's a great scene that intersplices these three characters together that totally sets up who these characters are, their dynamics with each other, and their motivations through and through, and it's the best Alexander Payne-directed scene that he has done yet. Time. All right. Bringing Mr. Jacoby. Jacoby, you now have one minute when you start talking. 
the best scene in a pain directed film is the double date dinner scene in Sideways. This scene is an absolute masterclass in character work, in setup and payoff, in writing, in directing, and just overall escalation. It starts with one of the best line readings Paul Giamatti has ever given with, I'm not drinking fucking Merlot. But besides that just being an awesome line, that also sets the tone for the rest of the scene. It immediately establishes the danger that Miles could go off the rails if he drinks too much, and then we have to watch it happen. Sober Miles soon shifts to drunk Miles, leading to one of the most revealing, cringy, tragic moments in a pain film with Miles drunk dialing his ex-wife. But besides that big stuff, it's the little things that add to this scene's greatness. It's Jack slowly realizing Miles is, is losing it. It's Miles' guilt-ridden and shameful face when Jack calls him a published author. It's the interaction between the two couples as we see Miles and Maya make a true connection over wine while Jack and Stephanie stick to only a base uh, base level stuff. For all of that and and for all for both a combination of big things and little things, this is the best directed scene uh, in a pain film. Time. All right. Bring back in Coho. You guys have five minutes when one of you starts talking. If you think this sets the tone for your entire scene, you have not seen Sideways. There's a scene in a diner earlier that sets the tone for this entire movie, specifically this entire scene that is just Jack and Giamatti that is better, that entirely sets up what your scene is about. Your diner scene is just sort of pay off to something that we got set up 30 minutes earlier and even then it doesn't totally pay that off it's more so its own thing it's a really weird scene that doesn't totally fit within the narrative of sideways whereas mine is the entire point of election uh yours is a weird thing because it actually over explains everything that we saw before you're talking about everything. yes it does you the, what do we learn from the scene tracy really wants to win that's the whole point of her character before uh trace uh, uh tammy doesn't give a shit yeah we know that um, uh, Paul is just nice and he loves his sister. That scene was set up just five minutes before, or like five or 10 minutes before when he's giving his homework and he tells how much he loves his sister. Your information, your scene is a rare moment of Alexander Payne having to tell the audience, okay, are if, we all sure we're all, the, we're all on the same page here? You know what these characters are like? Okay, now we can move forward, which is unnecessary for the pain film because he spent the whole movie setting it up before. Then you completely did not watch my scene because then you don't know what the, my scene is not at all that point. My scene's point is to tell you that Tracy will do anything that it takes to win, including and we don't being underhanded. No, you don't. This is the moment where you do learn that. You know she's just super competitive unless she wants to win before. You don't know that she would kill someone in this scene. Her prayer literally is about, I would do anything to win and I deserve this, so I will kill someone if I have to, is her entire prayer. And then the sister, it, we know that she had her heart broken and we know that she doesn't give a shit, but you find out she gives a shit in this prayer. That's where you get the reveal that she actually kind of does care and that she still has her heart broken and that she doesn't the whole thing that she has is she doesn't give a shit about it i think this scene enhances her character into being oh she has a heart and chris klein is the comedic beats of this work yeah he loves his sister that's not the point the point of this scene is we love this dude and guess what he's probably the one who deserves to win the most just because he doesn't hate everyone and that's yes, the comedic beat every, that all those parts all three. Those topics are everything that we that we that was set up earlier in the movie before uh, that it's a, it's a it's a it's a place clearing scene to get to the final finale whereas it's like a weird palate cleanser in order to get there which is kind of weird and oddly placed my scene actually drives the momentum forward to there because you say it's, it's set up earlier in the jack diner scene that was just an interaction uh between jack and miles but then we actually see them interact with people beforehand we see the connection that they're about to make with these people and then their realizations their the, the, the revealing aspects of miles character here and jack's character here and miles uh, and miles and uh and uh stephanie's uh, character here drives the next plot, drives the rest of the movie. Your movie is like a little interlude that doesn't have any that tie to the plot. We cut away from the mo the more interesting part of your movie, which is uh, Jim uh, Matthew Broderick's character oh, finding insane. out that his wife and his mistress have met and talked to each other. And then we cut away to the prayer scene, which doesn't tie in very well together for everything. It is oddly placed and just doesn't work. 
Okay, no, my scene is not oddly placed because it is the scene where you actually get the full character reveals of all these people because we didn't know all this stuff before. You did it. Necessary. You did it. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You don't know half these people are as sadistic and fucking evil as they are. You don't know who these people really are. You think you do. This is the twist where you're like, oh, fuck. Two of these people would slit someone's throat. Chris Klein is a lovable idiot, but guess what? He's probably going to win this thing. You understand how Matthew Broderick sees all three of them now, and that's why that scene's better and is more important because guess what? Now we know who they are. Your scene is not even the scene you're describing because at the end of the day, Virginia Madsen and Paul Giamatti don't spend any time together in the next 30 minutes of this movie. They this they do not drive the plot forward. They don't see each other. That's the thing. Your scene has no relevance to what goes forward except that Jack and Sandra oh talked and Why then they talked again later. Going forward because they go to their house afterwards. They have all the scenes together. It sets up these two couples for the back half of the movie. Them but they aren't a couple in the back half of the movie, Jacoby. It's because it sets up here. It's why it's important. It's why and as it's we see important if nothing happens. What, what are you like talking about? Portals and then not doing portals. This what, is a what? bad scene. It is not the bad scene. It's everything. It is. We see the review. You asked. You talk about revealing aspects of character. This is the One most minute. revealing main character for Miles overall because we see the depths of his depression. That scene Wait, hold on. Ago. We talk a whole lot. Hold on. He calls his ex-wife and then we reveal the fact that he is a desperate, clingy, lonely man who wants to desperately get back to his own wife before that because that is the more revealing part of your character. That is different than your thing where it's just telling us everything that's happened before. You say, oh, we just find out Tracy's going to slit someone's throat. We see that in the scene where she tears down the posters and hides them desperately yeah. for that. We know Paul's a nice guy. We know that before when he goes to his sister and says, hey, I love you very much. Here's your homework. I hope everything's okay. I don't know why you're mad at me. Tammy doesn't give a shit. We know that before. It's a rare moment of, of over-explaining things, which is out of context for an Alexander Payne film. You are really good at reshuffling the order of events in this movie because none of those things happened before the prayer scene. The thing is with Sideways, you have picked a scene that comes 20 minutes after we know that Paul, Paul Giamatti is this sad, depressive, loves his wife person that he does not with. Nothing comes of this scene. It's Time. bad payoff. <sighs> <laughs> all right Jaco or yeah Jacoby you first. get you get first crack at a closing uh one minute when you start talking okay. give me a minute Uh, the dinner double date scene is the best because it accomplishes, I think, so many things. By itself, apart from everything else, I think it's a perfectly constructed scene with a great setup, a wonderful flow, a tragic realization, and an excellent balance between light comedy and intriguing tension thanks to its excellent performances, the writing, and the directing. But it also goes above and beyond that for what it does for the movie overall. Unlike co-host scene, my scene shifts the movie into its next phase. It shows the true depths of Miles' depression, which is all the more tragic given his connection with Maya. And it further digs the hole for Jack and Miles with their lives about their lives, setting us up for the excellent back half of the movie. Take Coho scene out of election and you don't miss a single thing because it's information that characters are telling us about themselves just in case we didn't catch it from their actions earlier in the movie. Paul loves his sister. Tracy wants to win. Tammy doesn't give a shit. You can't take my scene out of the movie because it's one of the most important and given its subject matter and its execution, it is also the best. And I am so tired and I yield my three seconds. <laughs> all right coho we'll go to you next one minute to close your argument when you start talking 
If I didn't know better, Jacoby was an editor because he loves to shift the placement of scenes in movies to make his argument better. My scene in election happens before any of the things he says and is the big moment where we understand who all these people are. How Tracy is the sadistic fuck who would kill someone to be the president. And how the sister is not actually someone who doesn't give a shit. She gives a shit a lot, but she tries to put up that facade because she's scared of getting hurt again. And Chris Klein is the lovable idiot that just wants to please everyone, but you understand deep down he's also really sad. This scene gives you everything you need to know about these characters and he's the best single cut and usage of the rule of three in any alexander payne movie Jacoby's scene doesn't actually set up anything in the back half miles is depressed and set up 20 minutes earlier and that doesn't go anywhere jack and sandra oh don't have much of a relationship except that they fuck one scene later and literally Vera, whatever her fucking name is the girlfriend of paul giamatti and her don't get together they're supposed to be set up in the scene nothing comes of it this is a wasted scene that sets up nothing for the rest of this movie jacoby thinks it's integral you could cut this out and the movie would be better mine makes my movie mine is election his isn't even the best part of sideways it's like Time. the second best all right um oh i don't know why i took you out you can stay okay uh, i was like i i just got so mad you gotta take me out <laughs> all right I'm really happy. I'm not judging this match. My God. Uh, okay. Um, who didn't get Doug? Your vote Doug. didn't count. Hang on, hang on. I, I, I need time. Oh, yeah, that's I'm fine. Not I'm ready yet. That's fine. I also didn't realize till just now how calm and civil most of my debates were. <laughs> it's accurate. That's accurate. It's, um, it's me. There's no such thing as calm or civil. <laughs> nope. I don't think I've ever had one of those. Um. Uh, this is why I'm really glad Cody and I never did that fucking music debate. It would have just gotten way too loud. You guys yeah, debated here. I know, and I didn't like it. <laughs> but the music debate was for like an actual title. One of us would have died. <laughs> All right, we good, guys? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. All right, Doug, we'll start with you. Um, oh my god, it was it. It's really close. It went back and forth a lot. Um, I think the closing is what sold me. Uh on co-host argument okay um bar we will go to you next um i actually went with jacoby uh i think jacoby did a better job at explaining why um it develops not only the characters but the story overall um and how this these interactions um benefit from scenes past and scenes in the future so i went with jacoby all right uh brian it comes down to you who are you picking and why um I have seen both movies, but it's been a long time, so I'm going purely by their debate as far as knowing what happened when and what affected future events and that, so I had to go purely by the debate, which I guess is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the end, it came down to, I, I think, kind of like Andrew was saying, in that, that Jacoby pitched me that his scene kind of created that transition and that descent of, of Paul Giamatti's character and kind of where the film was going, whereas co-host is kind of recapping what we knew. Maybe you find out a couple new facts, but um, in the end, I went with Jacoby. All right. So Jacoby wins point number three. It is now two to one. Uh, I don't want to be here anymore. In favor of Jacoby. So it comes down to the final question here. Uh, Coho needs to hit this in order to go to the uh, speed round. And the category is one that Jacoby picked. It is in the category of horror. And the question is, what is the most unsettling moment in 1992's Candyman? Uh, so, Jacoby, uh, you get to go first on this one since you drafted it. One minute when you start talking. 
throughout Candyman, the titular character is a presence. He's mostly a voice that speaks to Helen as we slowly learn more about this urban legend. The most unsettling moment is when we get the full reveal on how gross the man behind the voice actually is. When Helen tries to rescue the baby, she's caught and captured. We're then subjected to the most unsettling scene with Helen under his spell and unable to fight back. Candyman takes his bloody hooked stump and goes under her dress, clearly touching her inappropriately and saying, come with me. And that's already unsettling enough. But then the movie fully shows us what Candyman truly is as Helen opens his coat, uh, coat to reveal a rotted carcass swarming with bees. And then still, the movie unsettles you even more with Candyman kissing Helen with a mouthful of bees so they swarm around her body and down her throat. So many things are thrown at you all at once and it's all just so deeply disturbing. And it's why this scene is the most unsettling because it sticks with you. It's going to be with you and haunt your dreams at night. This one is uh, the most unsettling in Candyman. Time. All right. Move over to Coho. One minute to open your argument when you start talking. Jacoby's scene is the equivalent of every Midwestern dad telling me that Freddie and Jason are going to scare you as a child, when in reality, they only scared you in the 80s when you didn't know better. Like, at the end of the day, that scene is not as scary, because maybe because I live in 2020, but that scene, that scene does not affect me. My scene, I picked the bathroom scene, where her and a young child are standing outside the bathroom, and he tells her that some shit went down in the bathroom. And when I say shit, I don't mean shit. I mean someone got fucking killed. And so she goes in to investigate, and the bathroom is completely covered in blood and an arrow pointing right to the toilet where a swarm of bees are sitting there. To me, that is a lot more suddenly because I don't see anything. To me, what's scarier is not knowing what it is. When I see Candyman, all, all fear is completely erased because I know what he looks like and I know what he is doing. Mine sets up this idea that he's scarier in your head. And just to see the aftermath of Carnage is much more disturbing than to see the Carnage actually happen. Time. All right. Five minutes free form when one of you starts talking. I'll oh, you first. I, I talk first. Oh, I, was, I was great. I was totally surprised that. Um, first, I want to start off. I think you're mixing up your two scenes here because there's actually two elements here. You said that, that there's blood on the walls pointing to the toilet full of shit. Uh, there's shit on the walls, not blood. You're you're mixing up the beginning. I mean, they're both they're both there. You said, but it's not, you said it's not scary. Um, that's not the point of the question. It's not supposed to be scary. It's unsettling. It's the moments that stick with you. It's the moments that haunt your dreams. It's the moments that you remember from the movie. What I'm going to remember more is Candyman uh, driving bees down her mouth and touching her with his bloody hook claw. I am not going to remember a kid telling her, hey, some crazy shit went down. I've lived through Harvey Weinstein, uh, so that reality is something that I've seen every day in the news. So that is not as disturbing as it should be in the 90s. The thing is, for me, I think my scene is a lot more disturbing because you don't see anything, and that's worse. You're more disturbed by, this person can do this thing. Yours is a lot more of just, hey, in your face, let's show you a lot of shit that should freak you out. But guess what? I've seen a lot of movies that kind of undermine everything about yours. Just because maybe the effects don't hold up or because we live in a Harvey Weinstein world, which is a weird flex for your argument here, does not make the scene not any flex. less unsettling for the reality. fact that we see a woman being assaulted by a bloody hook stump and a rotted carcass full of bees and a woman being swarmed with bees over there. That makes your skin crawl. It's icky. It it's gross. It, it, it disturbs you. And that's the point of the question, Coho. The point of the question is not just what scares you and it's just what, what a kid tells me, hey, some crazy shit went down in there. Hey, this is what the guy could do. I'm not going to remember. It's like, oh man, what Candyman could do? Dude, I'm going to remember what Candyman actually did, and that's what I saw. I mean, I, I think you are going to remember 
the aftermath that is this bathroom that is completely covered in blood and shit and bees, and it looks like a war happened here. That is scarier to me than just seeing a man with bee body walk around and kiss this girl and put bees in her mouth. Like to me, this that yours is shock value more than disturbing. Yours is just like, hey, look what we can do in an R-rated '90s horror movie, and don't give a fuck. It's Mine is a lot more of actually setting up. Mine is a lot more standing up the ambiance of that character, and that's more disturbing because you remember what that character can do than what that character is. But for everything about the scene, which again, I think you're you're, you're mixing up uh, both of the scenes that happen because there's I'm a not. quick flash of the past that everything that happened in there, which is a quick bloodshot, which again cuts away after about two seconds because it feels like it doesn't want to go there and show you the bloody aftermath. It says more so his penis is in the toilet, and then it cuts away from that because it doesn't want us to see that. So because it, it because is afraid to show us those moments. And it's then not a, it's not about fear of showing you those moments, Jacoby. It's about knowing that if you don't show you those moments and leave it to your imagination, it's even more disturbing when you have to create that image, yeah, not when they show it. Uh, seeing the rotted carcass full of bees swarming over him as as this as this force of nature who is this kind of this calm, cool, collected man who's kind of seducing, who's kind of alluring. And then we rip open his coat to reveal the rotted, bad, horrible, horror icon that Candyman has turned to become. That is the moment that's more unsettling than anything that comes that's from yours, which cuts away really quickly from just about every instance that you're talking about. And it has the little kid tell us, it's like, oh, Hey, did you see what happened in there? It was bad, and then and then they killed him, and then she goes in there, and there's, there's walls full of shit, which is yeah, I guess that's pretty great. dried blood and shit. That is not the difference. You're mixing yes, up your two scenes. I'm here. not mixing my scenes. No, I'm not. You have not watched my scene then, because my I scene. Watched was, I watched no, you have movie. not, because when you walk into that bathroom, it is dried blood and shit coating the building, and you have that quick flash of the blood splatter. Because guess what? It's sub trying to subliminally give you the idea of it's not about fear of showing you anything. It's about letting you imagine it. Your mind makes things way more disturbing and unsettling than they could ever show you, and they know that, so they let you do it by giving you the scenario. To me, that and is a lot more scary of a psychologically disturbing scene than seeing a man with B-body that I've seen eight movies now. It doesn't unsettle you. It makes you kind it of does. curious what the type of horrible icon that this guy can is. What actually truly unsettles you is the full unleashing of what this man Which is. Which I've seen eight times. It's not unsettling anymore. It doesn't matter you're talking about other things. Talk about for the movie itself, for Candyman itself, the most iconic moment in Icon, the one that sticks out to you is how he makes you Why feel not? about how he assaults the women, about how gross he is, about all the terror that he can inflict. We're actually seeing that, and it's not just a... You a actually do see that in my scene. You don't actually get to see that in your scene. You just get to see him be weird. And just weird doesn't mean disturbing. It's shock value. It your scene is not effective. Though. Your scene is not effective. Jacoby, your scene is not effective because it is all shock value and no substance of actually being disgusting or disturbing. Mine is only that. Mine leaves it entirely in your imagination of who this person is while you still feel the full effects of how disturbing this character can be. Yours is just, hey, let's show you everything that this character looks like and then say, let you make up your mind. No, yours goes, here's bees. Fucking be if scared. If your skin doesn't crawl and you're not unsettled by what he does to Helen there, if your skin doesn't crawl by the bees swarming out of his mouth and down her mouth, and your skin crawls more about the fact that you walk into a bathroom with dried shit on the walls, then and dried blood. Ridiculous. And dried, and dried blood. blood. There is dried blood on the wall. You think that is worse? Someone got murdered there. Hi. I don't know if that unsettled All right. Uh, Coho, we will start with you. One minute to close your argument when you start talking. 
To me, seeing a man made of bees floating around is not disturbing. It's just not. The thing is, when you see him, all act and feeling of disturb of being disturbed leaves because now the threat is there. And when you see the threat, it's a lot less scary. Whereas mine shows you the aftermath of what this guy can do, and that's more disturbing. When you see it, and then it shows you her face, and you have to sit there and go, wait, I only saw a part of it, then... What can this guy do? And leave it in your imagination to create even more disturbing images than they can do. That scene leaves you more unsettled than Jacoby's. Jacoby's is B-Man. It's B-Movie prequel. This man is Jerry Seinfeld walking around in the body of bees. That's all it is. There's no disturbing images here. It's not disturbing because he's done. It's not. It's not. When you see the threat, it's less disturbing. Mine leaves it to your imagination. You sit there. You create what it. You get to create the urban legend. You get to create the scenario. And you yourself get to make it a lot more disturbing than it has any right to be because you are in charge of that scene. And I think that makes it even more disturbing that you are the one that has to make that image. And that sits with you more than Jacoby's B-Man scene. Time. <laughs> the Jerry Seinfeld prequel thing got me. All right, uh, Jacoby, one minute to close when you start talking. Coho keeps using the word disturbing, and the question is unsettling. Just remember that. Um, I think there's a small part of the movie that wants to make Candyman seem a little alluring and mysterious. His Tony Todd voice just kind of encaptivates you and draws you in, but that's really only a setup for the horrendous reveal of not only what Candyman looks like, but his gross actions that will make your skin crawl. You picture a rusty hook attached to a bloody stump of an arm tracing its way around a woman's private parts, and you tell me that's not more unsettling. You picture stuffing your hand inside a rotting carcass filled with bees, and tell me that's not unsettling. You picture being forced to kiss a monster and bees coming out of his mouth and, and picture them flying down your throat by the cupful and tell me that's not more unsettling. Coho scene cuts away from the really brutal stuff and has to tell us what happened. Mine reveals everything in all of its horrifying glory. And guess what? That sticks with you. You stay there. You're forced to watch this happen and you're forced to be uncomfortable. And it's an image and a scene that will stay with you, uh, with you at night when you're trying to sleep and think about Candyman and all this stuff, that is what's going to be the Time. more unsettling. All right. Um, I will say when this was picked as a topic, I watched this film to make a question and I was sad. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, I believe uh, Brian's vote was the final one last time. So we will go to Brian first on this one. All right. Uh, I first just want to point out that I mentioned penis leeches once in a debate and got shit for it. Uh, it's come up in two different topics here. Nobody even blinks. Just saying. Um, <laughs> that's, that's he's true. not wrong. He is not that's wrong. That's accurate. Um, this one was actually one of the easier ones for me. Um, I, I won't go into great details, but bottom line, bees in the mouth, Trump's bees in the toilet. Chicomi. Okay. Uh, we'll go to uh, Doug now. Uh no one listened to anybody. This movie is one of the most underrated horror movies ever. Uh, and it's really political that don't people, a lot of people don't give a credit for. But anyway, I digress. Uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, it's the unsettlingness of the scene itself uh, that Jacoby pitched uh, that got it. All right, Bar, your vote did not count. Where would you have gone and why? Um, that, that final closing argument made me really uncomfortable, Jacoby. So... <laughs> All right, so that means your winner, Jacoby Bancroft, uh, with a score of three to one. Uh, all right, Jacoby, uh, we will talk to you first. Uh, you beat Coho, you got over the hurdle, you are now in a title match. How are you feeling? 
Oh my god. Um I'm I'm <laughs> I'm kind of in shock. I think this is my first match ever that didn't go to a speed round. I think. That is correct. So I'm just I can't I can't believe it. Holy crap. Um that was great. That was a lot of fun. Man, that was fun. Um we went some back and Coho is a great competitor. I hope our our dynasty of a team that we're creating uh, isn't affected too much and and we can still be the, the close friends that we are after this. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited and scared and, and everything. That was a great match. Coho is so scary when he debates and makes me want to shrink in fear and he's so loud. And, and uh, But yeah, no, I'm rambling. So much fun. Excited. What happens next? I'm excited for that. Uh, yeah, we will definitely talk about what happens next uh, off off call. But uh, yeah, you are in a title match. That'll be at the end of the season. That is, uh, I believe, just uh, two weeks away now on the schedule. So we will have that match very soon. And uh, you and I will have some fun. Coho, uh, we'll move over to you. Um, this does mean that, uh, yeah, you're out of the running for this title match. We don't get the rematch. But what it does mean is that you are still in next season's tournament, uh, maybe with just a bit of a lower seed. So is there anybody that uh, you want to play in the tournament next season? Um, and how do you feel about how you played today? Oh, as soon as I lost the Superman pitch question, I was like, fuck, this is it. We're done. <laughs> I was like, we're, we're done. Because uh, I was like, I was like, I knew I wasn't going to, I thought I could win the MCU and I thought I could win the pain. Um, and I knew I wasn't going to win Candyman. So when I lost the Superman pitch question, I was like, okay, speed round maybe. And then I lost pain. And I went, oh, this is going to be a knockout. This is it. I'm done. So I was just like, I was like, I'll do my best, but I'm done. I don't, I knew the Candyman question was going to fuck me over. Uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't handle that, uh, that fight. So, um, yeah, uh, as for the tournament, I'll be back. I'll play whoever, uh, I will say, I want to see Caleb Boatman at some point. I, I think that would be super fun to just yell at Caleb Boatman and watch him shriek and backpedal while I tell him how, why I'm more right. Uh, because I want to see how Caleb Boatman argues against me. Not against Cody, not against Tim, not against anyone. I want to see Caleb Boatman yell at me and see if he actually has it in him. So, uh, yeah, come on, Caleb Boatman. Let's fucking meet up in this tournament. Uh, that act the uh, rankings it's, it's, it's a four. definite it's a definite oh, it's four? i thought it was three a new hope oh i cut out sorry i was looking at the rankings while i was talking <laughs> uh no that's definitely something that can absolutely happen um based on the seating so we'll we'll see if it does um but okay guys that was the match uh let's talk to the judges one last time for a quick recap brian your thoughts on the match um i had a lot of fun judging this for the for the first time um it was louder than I expected, although I guess I should have known better because Coho's here. Um, Jacoby, I think, is not quite sure if he wanted to win this one or not because <laughs> now he has to go again I don't know and against very intimidating new opponents, too. Um, but, yeah, great time. Hope uh, to Doug, your final thoughts? No, it was, a lot, it was a fun battle, and I enjoyed watching them both uh, go back and forth. It, this, was, uh, this was definitely an interesting one. And, Barr, what about you? Um, yeah, this was fun. Um, I mean, we're going to talk to Coho afterwards about going through the whole Harvey Weinstein thing, apparently. Um, but, um, otherwise, yeah, this was fun. Um, great questions. Great match. Yeah. Woof. Um, okay. Well guys, like I said, we'll see you back in two weeks. I won't be in the hosting chair that time. I'll be in the player's chair. It'll be me versus Jacoby and that'll be interesting. So we'll see you guys in two weeks for that match, but for Jacoby and Coho, Brian, Doug, and Barr. I've been Tim. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you real soon.
Uh, grab a Michelob Ultra, kiss your loved ones. See you next time. That's my bad. I was sending tweets.